Listen, Leroy. This breaking and entering might not be so smart. I mean, it's the first day of my 13th birthday. Could be unlucky. 13th birthday is unlucky anyway. Too old to get tit, too young to get ass. Fucked out of the way. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy yourself. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered Welcome to the Sword Cinema Podcast. This week, we're going to be discussing 1991's The People Under the Stairs, written and directed by Wes Craven. Here's a clip. In every neighborhood, there is one house that adults whisper about and children cross the street to avoid. Now, Wes Craven, creator of A Nightmare on Elm Street, takes you inside. Something's in there. But we gotta get out of here, Leroy. All sorts of rumors about what goes on in that house. The police never took it serious. She's been feeding that thing between the walls again. Very, very tense about this. <laughs> there must be another way out. Can't get out. No one ever has. What goes on in this house? is a sin. Your father's one sick mother, you know that? Actually, your mother's one sick mother, too. But what goes on under the stairs (laughs) is a nightmare. It is time to clean house! Scravens, the people under the stairs. All right, that was a clip from 1991's The People Under the Stairs, written and directed by Wes Craven. It is the story of a couple of burglars who break into a house and discover something horrifying is going on inside. I guess that's as much of the premises that I'm going to set up right now, because I'm sure we'll get into all of the goofiness, and it is goofy later on in the podcast. Um, but of course, joining me as always to discuss this is Ricky D. What's up, Patrick? I am one of the people under the stairs. (laughs) Just like Harry Potter. And coming back to the podcast is Goomba Stomp writer and podcaster, co-host of the Mid-Season Replacements podcast on Goomba Stomp, Sean Coletti. 
Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me back. I, I like to talk about this kind of stuff. Like, I, I love horror as a genre, although, like, how that fits into, how this film fits into that genre is an interesting conversation. But, yeah, like, the goofy stuff, I'm, I'm all in for. Yeah, this is, this thing's kind of a a mix of, of several different <laughs> genres, I feel like, all rolled up into one. It starts out as one thing, and it ends up becoming another thing. Um, but we can sort of get into how this is structured. This is it's interesting let's put it that way uh but rick you chose this movie so uh, we always like to to ask you know rick and i switch off choosing movies why did you choose this movie rick well i'm a huge fan of wes craven i had the idea actually after we reviewed Candyman for obvious reasons but i think this movie is somewhat underrated yet i remember it being a lot better than it actually is because when i first saw the film i was younger and watching in 2020, it doesn't quite land. I still like it. I still think it's an interesting film. I think it presents a great idea for a horror film. It's essentially a home invasion film done in reverse. A lot of people bring up the comparison to Home Alone, which I understand because in this movie, it's a young kid. I think he's 13 years old who invades the home of this crazy couple. But there's something about home invasion films. I do not know why. But there's so many good ones. So there's a lot to discuss here because even as a Wes Craven film, it's part comedy, part horror. It's a satire. It's many things. And I'm not entirely sure if it was done purposely like that. Like, I'm not entirely sure if if Craven knew what he wanted to do because this is kind of like a really dark and twisted film. If you think about it, there's actually one scene which I'm going to talk about later in the podcast, which I find incredibly disturbing. But I don't think Wes Craven at the time could have made it as a dark, straightforward, like serious horror film, because I think it would have been too much for the Hollywood system and too much for an audience, like a mainstream audience. I think the casting was kind of ingenious because he needed to add that humor. I mean, this is really a film with subtext about capitalism and socioeconomic divides and race relations, but it's mostly about the evils of domestic abuse, and that's why I find the film to be quite disturbing at times. But yet, it's done in an over-the-top, flamboyant, humorous kind of way where the villains themselves, I mean, we're going to have to talk about the bad guys in this movie, but they're... Like, it's hard to take them seriously. You know what I mean? It's hard to take a man seriously when he's running around in bondage gear, <laughs> toting a shotgun. Like, I mean, it's just it's just a, such a fascinating, strange film. I'm not even quite sure where to start, but the humor doesn't always quite land, and the scares don't quite scare. But I still find this film incredibly entertaining, and... I think it's just because it's so unique. Like, even if you think about the soundtrack, I mean, like, the actual Blu-ray has an entire featurette about the making of the music and the soundtrack for this film because it sounds so different than any horror film that I've ever watched. And it's so different than what we what we knew of Wes Craven prior to The People Under the Stairs. The man who made movies like The Last House on the Left, A Nightmare on Elm Street, The Hills Have Eyes. So... Yeah, it touches on a lot of themes, and I'm not entirely quite sure if it knows exactly what it wants to address, because there's so many things that it's, like, 
you know, focusing on, be it like racism. I mean, like right at the start of the film, like the main character uses the N word, for example, um, to just like the fact that it's based on a story. If I'm not mistaken, it's based on an actual true story that Wes Craven read in a newspaper about a family who was who, who had locked, I think, locked their children up in the basement and it was a neighbor who called the cops because someone was trying to break into their house. So because someone was trying to break into the house, the cops actually found out that the, the, this couple was keeping their children hostage, locked up in the basement. And then he took that concept, he ran with it, and he came up with this movie. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. I would first say that the movie definitely starts off, I think, as trying to be sort of traditional horror. And I definitely got creepy vibes from it. I would say that that really works. We can discuss whether or not the satire works. I personally think the satire is pretty clumsy and, and isn't really effective at all. But uh, but later on, as far as the the humor goes, it definitely ramps up into sort of zaniness. And I think it completely embraces it. And that seems to be, I, I feel like that's the movie that he wanted to make, but he had to start off making sort of, he starts the movie in a traditional horror way to sort of ease you in to what is going to become absolutely ridiculous later on. Um, as this 13 year old kid manages to fight off all of these attacks um, and becomes kind of an action hero in the process. But yeah, that's, he's definitely going for something. You can see, you can see he's certainly trying. Whether or not he completely succeeds is open to debate. But Sean, what is your what is your history with this movie, and what are your impressions of it? Oh, good question. Um, so I come from a background of both listening to hip hop and watching basketball. So I'm constantly engaging in these conversations about your top five, whatever, or your Mount Rushmore, or whatever. Um, and, and Mount Rushmore is just shorthand for top four if there's uh, a convenient thing to, to look at through that lens. Um, Wes Craven's definitely on my Mount Rushmore of horror directors and The People Under the Stairs is definitely on my Wes Craven Mount Rushmore. This, The Serpent in the Rainbow, uh, Scream 2, and Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which is definitely my favorite of his films, are the ones that I return to the most probably. And all four of those don't really fit neatly into a genre. Uh, all have varying degrees of satire or formal experimentation. Uh, New Nightmare especially is very much um, like a warm-up act for what Scream was trying to do in terms of addressing genre convention. And I think The People Under the Stairs has a little bit of that as well. This is the, the film that he directs uh, before New Nightmare. Um, it's, it's that aspect of it that I really enjoy. I agree. Like the beginnings of it, some of the early scenes, especially when fool is going down the stairs for the first time frames through a horror lens shot and executed very much how a, a traditional horror film might go. Uh, and then it goes into different places, which I really appreciate. Ricky, you said that you, you liked this more, or you remember liking it more when you saw it at a younger age. And I think that's a really key observation because to me, of all of Wes Craven's films, at least that I can think of, um, this is the one that I would say is probably best suited for a younger audience, as weird as that is, given that it's it's hyper-violent, has a lot of profanity, and there are a couple uh, very questionable sexual things, which I think you alluded to earlier. Uh, but still, I, I would say that this is this is kind of like the the slightly darker Goonies 
to me. I know it doesn't have that full team of kids. It's really just full for the most part, although we get um, well, other people in the house. Yeah, there's yeah, Roach. most of the action. Yeah, Alice Roach. Roach and, is the sloth of the... <laughs> yeah, you could see it like that, for sure. Um, and and that's just fun for me. So is this Craven's best film? Certainly not. But I think I put it up in that upper echelon just because it refuses, and I think consciously, to address that question that you posed, Ricky, about whether or not Craven is aware that he's doing this. I think it consciously tries to not fit into one of those boxes neatly, and, and that's something that I really get on with. Yeah, there's a part of this movie that seems like fantasy to me, which is why it's probably, like you said, maybe his movie that, that's most suitable for children, because this is a child fantasy of saving the day. I mean, there's there's things that happen later on in this movie that are completely out of the realm of reality as far as, even though this isn't a, a supernatural movie in any way, um, there are, there's no supernatural force at play here, but there are things that the, a 13-year-old child does that are completely, um, de defies the laws of physics, let's put it that way. When you guys were kids, did you and your friends ever obsess over a specific house in your neighborhood that was rumored to be haunted and you would always want to break into the house because when i was growing up there's a there was a house down the street and i think like 10 people moved in and out of the house over a span of like 10 years it, it was called a cursed house so we always wanted to break in i remember when i rented this movie for the first time i didn't actually want to rent it because i thought it would just be like a really cheesy like horror film right only after I realized it was directed by Wes Craven and it starred the kid who played Michael Jackson in the music video for Bad. I think it was Bad. Was it Bad? Yeah, it was Bad. Uh, Brandon Adams, right? He played Michael. So for those two reasons, I decided to rent the movie. And I remember being pleasantly surprised. Like, I remember actually really liking this movie. And, like, I never thought it was, like, a scary film. I never, I was never, like, really terrified or scared or disturbed. Except for, like, the bathroom, the bathtub scene, which we'll talk about again later in the podcast. But there's something, about, like, again, there's something about it. It's quite unlike any horror film that I've ever seen. I mean, um, it's a project. So, like, we open up the movie and we learn that Fools, is it his mom or his grandma is ill? She's sick. And she, his mom. His mom is she, so they are about to get evicted, and Vin Rames, who by the way this is before Pulp Fiction, he plays Leroy, and he has this uh, idea that they're going to break into this house, like this big huge pl master plan to break into a house, steal some money, so they can save the day. Right? It's weird because, um, like, okay, I, I the movie ends with the shot of the entire house and the house itself is probably the best character in the movie like it's this house of horrors with like booby traps and trap doors and it's like a maze and it's got a secret basement and you know what i mean like it's just the house itself is just so interesting it's got a maze behind the walls yeah like bigger crawl spaces you know huge crawl spaces and winding little tunnels um that you go behind the walls and the the climax of the film like the film ends with the destruction of the house and the raining of money just pouring down on the neighborhood. And I just love that shot. And so I hadn't seen this movie in years. And for whatever reason, I remember it being supernatural, even though, like you said, Patrick, it's not. But the one shot that always stuck in my memory, that burned in my memory, was that last shot of the money falling from the sky and how they saved the day by destroying the house. And I, I don't know, I just, I just, that was, 
it's hard for me to explain why I like this movie. Like, I, 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 I can see a lot of people not liking this movie. We'll talk about if it stands the test of time later in the podcast. But I actually ordered the Blu-ray. So I ordered the Blu-ray. And I was, like, worried that I might be, I might, like, regret spending, like, $20 to order the Blu-ray. But no, I think this is the type of movie that I can watch over and over and over. Even if I personally don't think it's on Wes Craven's top five movies like Sean does. But I do think that, unlike, say, a movie like Last House on the Left, I would much prefer to watch this movie over and over and over again. Even though at times it's disturbing because it's just also like a really fun horror comedy. Yeah, it's far more fun than than a lot of his other films. Well, I shouldn't say a lot of his other films. He did sort of he started making more fun movies um, eventually. But but it uh, it's fascinating in a way. Uh, what I want to ask about because I, I had seen this movie for the first time only a couple of days ago. Just had never caught it. Rick, you were afraid I was going to hate it, <laughs> but I did not. Uh, I found it interesting. I certainly was rolling my eyes at a couple of parts later on in the movie and thinking like, okay, you know. Wes Craven didn't need to maybe do go that far with a couple of things. Um, but I did really like the wackiness, the zaniness, like, like you say, the guy running around with a, in a bondage outfit. I don't really know why, but with a shotgun blowing apart his own house, trying to shoot people that are running through the, the crawl spaces, there was something really, really <laughs> just fun. Just you describing that, like should convince the listener, I need to see this movie. I know. And that's what makes it really interesting. What I wanted to ask you about, though, because I knew nothing about this movie, nothing about the tone. I hadn't read anything. I just I went in there cold. And so it starts out, like I said, sort of like I, I got genuine creeps out of the, the first 15, 20 minutes of this movie. Um, I didn't know what was going on. Didn't know where the movie was was headed, which is always a great thing, right? Like it's that's such a refreshing thing when you're watching a movie. You have zero idea where this is going. I knew it was called the people under the stairs. So I knew that eventually there would be people under the stairs, but <laughs> that I didn't know anything. Uh, but there is a tonal shift. So it's, it starts going away from that horror. I would say basically once, once the dog kind of gets in and, and goes after him and Leroy, all of a sudden there's some comedy there. This is where the comedy first starts to show up. Uh, you know, like where Leroy is, Leroy's hiding behind the couch and he's telling a fool to, to be a distraction and the dog walks in the room and immediately knows there's somebody behind the couch. Like this is, and it's played for a little bit of comedy. Uh, that's where it starts. And then it only gets funnier from there. Like things start to get more and more ridiculous from there. Um, how did you guys, so for me that, that tonal shift was jarring at first and it made me, I had a, a, an adverse reaction to it at first until I started to get used to it. Do you guys feel did you guys feel anything like that when you're watching this? Yes. Now in 2020, yes. But here's the thing. So, you know, if you bring up the comparison to Home Alone, which a lot of people like to do, when they break into the house for the first time and they encounter Prince, the dog, up until when the mom and dad, the parents of the house, played by Wendy Robbie and Everett McGill, who starred in Twin Peaks, up until when they show up. To me, that's the movie of Home Alone, right? It's like Joe Pesci and What's-His-Face break in and Macaulay Culkin's character, Kevin, finds a way to fight them off and then the movie ends. But this movie, if I feel like there's an extra three acts, right? So you got the opening when they make it to the house and then they break into the house and then you have all of the chaos that ensues, which brings in the comedies, specifically with the dog and, then, and the mom and dad finally do show up. But then there's two added layers. Then we discover Alice and there's a whole backstory of Alice, like her backstory, which is really depressing. And then we... We, we, we discover the kids, the, the people under the stairs. 
And that's when it shifts more to like the horror territory. Like it becomes a little bit more dark and twisted. And then we have the ending, but then the movie ends, but then they go back into the house to save Alice. So it has this additional like fifth act. You know what I mean? So like this movie doesn't really have the, the three act structure. It feels like it has five or six acts. So when Prince shows up, it is jarring at first because you're like, whoa, all of a sudden I'm like watching Home Alone, but it's like a kid breaking into a house and he's trying to like get past his killer dog. And then somehow it shifts back into horror and it finds a way to blend it perfectly. So the tonal balance is weird, but at the end of the day, when you get to the end of the film, it sort of works. I think that one of the reasons why it might come across that way where it's an elongated version of the traditional structure that we associate with screenplays is that in terms of like subgenre or specific uh, archetypes uh, it's not just home invasion to me i think that there's also partially a heist movie in here and like some time is devoted to fleshing out both of those things which is why those turns uh, are a little bit surprising because we do get heist sequences in addition to the Home Alone style sequences. Well, it starts as a heist film and then it turns into Home Invasion when the two adults are murdered. That's Vin Rames and I'm sorry, I forget the other actor's name. When those two dudes are murdered, it's up to the little boy, Fool, to go back and invade the home to save Alice. Yeah, it's odd because home invasion movies you definitely associate with you um, you being like the homeowner, right? You're supposed to get scared because the, the invasion is of your safe space. That's not really what's going on here, even though, I mean, there, there's nobody invading somebody's safe space. It's you actually breaking into a place that that is dangerous and trying to escape. This is all about getting out. It's almost like haunted house in a way. Um, that's the way I kind of saw it, as you're trying to escape this haunted house. And in many ways, like you said, the house is a character and with all the booby traps and everything else, this is a bizarre house. Like <laughs> I really, I really wanted to go into the backstory of how they built this house, to tell you the truth, because they really put some time and effort into this thing and clearly they had the money to do it. Um, but that's what it felt more like to me was the, the haunted house movie where we go into this place, not really knowing to, what to expect. All of a sudden we realize it's completely dangerous and we need to get out, but there's no way to get out the doors shut on me, you know, the, there's, there's mystical locks everywhere or windows that won't break or, you know, I love the electric, you know, how they electrified the, the doorknob so that they, that people couldn't escape um, all the different metal doors that are, are in place to make sure that nobody in that basement possibly could get out just in case they escape the basement. Um, yeah. But that's what it felt like to me more than a home invasion movie. When you posed the question earlier uh, about that tonal shift from, from horror into more comedy, uh, what, the fact that, that was jarring, was that a negative thing to you? It was at first. And I would like to go back and see this movie again because now I'd be prepared for it. But yeah, at first, because I was actually enjoying the horror vibe of those first 15, 20 minutes, which I, I, I thought were very effective. Um, there were a couple of times where I, I got sucked into me. You know, when the hand comes out of the, the, the heating vent, that was the first time I was like, whoa, okay. I mean, I got a little bit little bit of chills there. And the way they were treating the daughter, I was like, there's something really messed up going on in this place. Um, so it was for me, like I said, I had an adverse, a negative reaction to it because I was enjoying what I was seeing. And now all of a sudden it was giving me something else. So I had to then readapt 
to what it was trying to to give me. I think my experience the first time was similar to that, although it was probably slightly less negative just because uh, my previous experience with, with Wes Craven would have been things like Last House on the Left and The Hills Have Eyes. And I was a bit relieved, I guess, to not be immersed in like another grindy, really difficult film to watch. Um, so that shift where it became more lighthearted and you weren't really expecting uh, to get any jump scares or anything like that at a certain point. It was, it, it sucked me into that quality of it being fun. I, I suppose I, I was glad that I, I guess from a filmmaking perspective, I was glad to see diversity in style there. But if this had been my first experience with Craven uh, and I was expecting it to be horror and like going in, oh, I'm watching this because I like horror for sure. I would have been disappointed in a negative way with that, even though after that shift happens, like he really earns it eventually. Like it, it's, it's a bit difficult at first, but as you're about halfway through the film, you're like, yeah, this has settled into something and I'm along for the ride. Yeah, and it gets so zany that you kind of you either you start enjoying it because he really goes all out. He doesn't really hold back, which is great. You know what's interesting about Craven is when you think of the '80s and you think of movies in general, you think of like like you know you bring up. I think you mentioned the, the comparison to uh, Goonies. Like it has this more lighthearted spirit to the films. It's not as heavy and dark and twisted. When you think of '90s. You start thinking of movies like Seven or, I don't know, The Fight Club or movies that take themselves more seriously, right? More, quote-unquote, mature films. Wes Craven's interesting because the films that he made in the 80s and late 70s are really dark and twisted, like Last House on the Left, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Hills Have Eyes. Swamp Thing. Swamp Thing. Shocker, I mean. (laughs) but, But when he goes into the 90s, and this is his first movie he filmed in the decade of the 90s, he starts with The People Under the Stairs. Sure, he did Wes Craven's New Nightmare, but put that aside. He did Vampire in Brooklyn, and then he moved on to the Scream franchise. So I kind of felt that is when he really wanted to experiment more with horror comedy. I mean, you could argue there's always comedy within the original Nightmare on Elm Street and a movie like Shocker. Um, Swamp Thing came out in 1982. That was a huge disaster. But I don't know. It, I kind of feel like... He wanted to make a different kind of like horror film. And the thing I like about Wes Craven is he always put story over horror first and foremost. And a lot of people just don't give him credit for that. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he's just so good at what he does. He knows how to make a movie scary. Like when we reviewed Scream 2, I think like two weeks ago, we talked about how Kevin Williamson, when he wrote the screenplay, there were specific scenes where he just wouldn't write it. Instead, he would leave a note saying, Wes Craven will make it scary. Don't worry about it. And that's the thing about Craven. He can make anything scary. He knows how to build suspense within a horror film, as he's proved time and time again from Nightmare on Elm Street all the way up to Scream 3 and 4. But I think he's still focused and interested mostly on story. And, you know, this actually has a really, really good screenplay. Now, you can tell this is the thing about this movie. This is why I chose the movie. Before I found out that Jordan Peele was going to remake this movie, I've been saying for years and years and years, if you're going to remake one of Wes Craven's movies, remake The People Under the Stairs. I think it has the most potential to to be a success with a remake 
because I think there's a really good screenplay there. And I think you can take that movie and you can fix the problems that he might have had back in 1991. And I say problems like, look, this movie I still find entertaining. I still like it. I still think it's one of his best films. And it was a box office success. Like it made back its money. It was a huge hit. And I think also the critics really liked it too. But I think there's potential here, and that's why I'm interested to see what Jordan Peele does with the movie. I think there's a lot of potential to make this into, like, an amazing movie. Not just, like, a fun movie, not just, like, a curiosity, but something that's actually really, really good. Because there's a lot to dig into here. Uh, again, going back to the themes of racism and class divides and domestic abuse, etc., etc. There's a lot There's a lot to do with this movie. Like, um, I'm wondering, like... If you were to cat like if you were to give it a completely different cast, like you know, say mommy and daddy weren't played by two of the actors from Twin Peaks, and they were played by actors who would take their craft, uh, who would take the role a bit more seriously, it could be a completely different film tonally, right? I think like the cast, like even having Ving Rhames, like when he shows up, I'm pretty sure he ad-libbed most of his lines because he sounds like he just walked off the set of Pulp Fiction, but this movie was filmed three, four years prior to Pulp Fiction. Well, he's great in this movie. I, he's one of the big, like, pleasant surprise that he showed up in this for me. Um, I don't. I think if you're gonna re- the, the if you're gonna remake this, I see the remake being a completely serious remake, and I think it it'll fall flat because of that. I think if you're gonna remake this, if you don't keep the goofiness, then you're gonna lose sort of the heart and soul of this movie. I think that's really required, and it was inspired casting to have that couple from Twin Peaks, like <laughs> be the coupleness, their weirdness helps sell so much of what Craven's trying to get across as far as the tone goes. And maybe they drove some of that tone too. Maybe they showed up on set and that was how they were performing. And he just thought, well, I've got something here. I'm going to go in that direction. But uh, I feel like a straight remake of this story, even though it is an interesting story and you could make another movie from this, I don't feel like it'll be nearly as memorable. I think it'll just end up being another horror movie Um, because what you remember, or at least what I am, likely to remember from this movie isn't going to be the satire which is is there and Wes Craven throws a lot of it in his movies and can argue whether or not he's written it well or or not I I personally don't think he writes satire all that great or or even a lot of times handles it that great I think he's a little more blunt than than I would prefer but there's the the set pieces in this are what I'm going to remember the most and then some of the images uh the premise is is definitely intriguing but it's how he handles his set pieces that I, I'm going to walk away from this movie remembering. I feel like if they're going to do this seriously, and I would bet money they are, like 100% dead serious, that it'll just sort of fizzle and it'll just be like, okay, it might be a somewhat scary movie for the evening and maybe you'll get some jump scares out of it, but will the weirdness, will, will the magic happen? I don't know. It'd be like trying to remake Evil Dead 2. I just don't think you can do it. I think it's going to depend a little bit on what role Jordan Peele is going to have. I think as of right now, he signed on to produce, but if he has a bigger role in it than that as a screenwriter or as a director, I I could see it working in the way that the three of us would probably want, because I agree that uh, an at-face-of-value serious trying-to-be-a-horror-film version of this probably won't, won't land as well. But I thought a lot of the joy that came out of watching something like Get Out had to do with part of its campiness and the the clear love that it had for 
uh, horror as a genre with a history of filmmakers like Craven as influences. So if he is a little bit more in charge of that and gets to make some of those creative decisions and gets to do it in a similar tone to Get Out, I could see that version of it being very similar to this and working well. But we're not going to know about that, I think, for a while. So the last thing I'm going to say before we go to break, you guys can continue talking, though. Um, I remember when I rented this movie, I'm pretty sure I rented it the same day as Boys in a Hood. It came out the same year as Boys in a Hood. And that was the year when, I, like you, Sean, I've always played basketball. I've always loved hip-hop music. Um, and I grew up across from what we call the Heights here in Montreal, which is sort of like the projects. And so... I remember just being obsessed with movies like Boys in Hood. And I remember that's why we rent another reason why we rented People in the Stairs. They made this really fascinating, like odd double bill that you would never think of. And so whenever I think of this movie, I also think of that film as well. Um, but this made my list of the best films of 1991. It just made the cut at number 29. But it was also a really good year for horror. And we've talked about this in the past on the podcast where the 90s wasn't really a good decade for horror. Um, when you compare it to like the 80s and especially the 70s and what happened after in the 2000s. But I do think like, for example, number one movie of that year was Silence of the Lambs, which is a horror film. So it was kind of like the end of this era of like horror films. And then thankfully horror made a huge comeback. Um, but like, if you told me this movie was made in 1989, I would believe you. You know what I mean? Like, it, it borders on the 80s and 90s vibe. Like, it, it could be, like... You know what I mean? Like, when you think of 90s movies, you can think of this movie. But if you if you mention 80s movies, you can also think of this film, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I was going to go into... I was going to ask about the visuals of this. Because we did do Scream 2 a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, one of the things we talked about was Wes Craven's camera work in that movie. Um, I think it's very, very different. There's only, what, maybe seven years that separated those two films um, not even um so what do you guys think of this movie from an aesthetic point of view because it doesn't it, it definitely doesn't seem like later craven this was this the cam work here seems to be more early craven the production design and the set design do so much work that it feels like the camera can have a sort of day off with this production. There, there are some good instances of uh, clever shots and good camera work, but just being in that house and its design, uh, it, it creates the kind of mood that Craven does with the camera in other films. So uh, this is kind of an outlier. Like few, I'm sure if you were to think like, oh, what are some of the best sets that I've seen in a film before. Um, you could come up with some. And in Craven's filmography, this is the one that stands out the most to me uh, off the top of my head. And so I, weirdly, I almost don't even notice Craven and his uh, DP at work here. Um, but yeah, but I mean, it'd be interested to hear what Ricky has to say. I totally agree. Uh, first of all, I'll be honest, I'm not familiar with the work of the cinematographer. Her name is Sandy Sissel. But to stand out for me in terms of like the look is, I guess, the art direction. Like it's the actual house. Like again, the house of horrors. Um, the way it has all these crazy booby traps and it feels like a maze within a maze. 
and most of the film takes place within the house. So it's not a one location horror film, but I would say about 90% of the film takes place within that home. And I'm assuming it's all done on a Hollywood set, like inside a studio, and it feels very claustrophobic, so I'm not entirely sure how much room he had to maneuver the camera. Um, I can't think of any like killer long takes or... I mean, it's not that it's not that Wes Craven didn't do a good job or certain cinematographer didn't do a good job, but it's it's the one time where I actually come on the podcast and I got to say, like, it's the last thing that I remember. Like, usually I'm like all about visuals. And in this movie, I wasn't really paying any attention to the visuals. I was actually paying more attention to the sound design and the soundtrack. I also want to mention the costumes. I mean, when you're talking about the production design, I feel like the costumes do a lot. And I know, obviously the gimp outfit is probably the standout one, but even the way the dad, uh, daddy has like 50 style clothes where his pants are pulled up too high. Um, or the way that, you know, mommy is, is dressed or how she's got the the bloodstained apron and everything like that. Um, a, a lot has in Alice's clothes, just all make it seem like a place out of time, you know, and the sort of the rags that the, the kids that are under the stairs where everything has this surreal quality to it as far as the costumes. I rarely get that from a contemporary movie. Obviously costumes are at their most showy when they're doing something, you know, in the, in the far past, like another a completely different era. Um, but this one still stood out to me. I loved the way that they looked and I felt like they, that contributed a lot to how, to how those characters actually work. I felt it said a lot about them and grounded them in a, in a way that even when they were going crazy, like you could still sort of relate to who they were as a base character. Yeah. I'm, and I'm trying to think what are some of the shots that do stand out and the only ones that really stick in that way. Uh, and I'm similar to what you were saying, Ricky, in terms of how you tend to view films the only ones that stick out in that way are the more traditional horror ones. So upstairs, fool pins at the end of the hallway near the vents and daddy being up there and kind of slowly going from door to door, coming towards the the camera. Uh, stuff like that where I'm situated in a very familiar context, I think, are the shots that work really well and were probably... Craven was trying to inject uh, some of the the past experiences working on those films into this, but for the most part, it's it's pretty erratic, and I think that that it fits with the kind of film that this is. He does utilize his floating camera a little bit in between the walls, and that was kind of nice to see that that helps build some of the tension uh, when the dot when Prince is chasing them through that maze. Um, but other outside of that, yeah, it all all felt fairly standard to me and you're right it's not really a noticeable film from that from that point of view i mean the best shot is when fool finds the gold coins for the first time and i don't know if you remember the shot but he's i I think he's in the basement and he has like there's the light is shining through the floor or not the floorboards the the boards on the wall and he picks up the coin he holds it up and it hits the light and then we get this like beautiful close-up of fool and it's a differential focus so it focuses on the coin and then they shift to focus so they focus on his face but the light is coming from the flashlight of roach 
who's hiding behind the walls. So he's like Roach is basically using a flashlight to shine the light on the coin. And because the light, the flashlight, the light from the flashlight hits the coin, it makes it even brighter. And you get this beautiful shot of Fool's face, the character, um, the actor played by Brandon Adams. That's the, the shot that I remember the most. And it takes place in the basement. Do either of you know the name of the shot? Uh, it, a really famous one used in, um, I think most notably, Jaws, uh, Vertigo. Jaws Vertigo. Yeah, that's the yep. one where the camera yeah. pushes in and then the, but the lens zooms out. You dolly in and zoom out at the exact same time. I can, I can never remember the name of that shot, but as I was watching the movie, that popped in my head too. I was like, what is that shot called? I can never remember what it is. Yeah, was that used once in the basement with Daddy, but it was so dark, I couldn't quite yes. tell if, if that was being used. It, it, it was an absolutely. interesting choice. Isn't it just called a double dolly shot? I think uh, colloquially I think an... it's vertigo shot. But yeah, in terms of the technical term, that might be something similar to that. But I think people refer to it as vertigo. Because the thing is, Spike Lee's the one who made it popular. Like, it's been done prior, but like Spike Lee's the one that did it in every single one of his movies over and over, that it's like his signature visual shot. But I know I know it has the double dolly shot. It could be completely wrong. Yeah, it's used a lot in a different effect. I mean, Scorsese uses it in Goodfellas, but he does it way more subtly. Most people do it really quick right? because they they want it to be sort of a zoom in on a character, like the character's world constricts around them. Um, but uh, I, I always remember it from Vertigo and Jaws. Those are those are the two that, that stick out most for me. But yes, you were not mistaken. There was a shot like that in the basement on on Daddy. <laughs> Okay, good. Yeah, it was just so dark in that scene that I couldn't quite tell. Yeah. All right. Well, um, oh, I want one thing. Can you guys explain one thing to me plot-wise, since you've, probably, you've seen this movie more than I have? I didn't quite understand what was going on with the other kids in the basement. So essentially, tell me if I'm wrong here, they would kidnap children, try to raise them, realize that they had bad qualities like see no evil hear no evil speak no evil kind of thing like maybe they said something and roach got his tongue cut out and then they would stick the kids into the in the basement and just keep them there for some reason i i guess i want to know why they kept them in the basement instead of killing them since they seem to have no qualms about killing yeah that's a good question i'm not entirely sure but the idea i think is that daddy wants a son and so in his head his firstborn son has got to be like perfect in his eyes and so every every time they capture or kidnap a kid, I guess the kid's just not good enough for them. Um, I'm not entirely sure why they don't kill the kids, especially if they have this problem where the kids are running around inside walls. <laughs> so it's kind of like weird. <laughs> he certainly had no problem killing Roach. I think I have an answer for that. And everything that you just said, like right on, you got that. It's as ridiculous as it sounds for sure. Um, but why keep them alive, uh, specifically in that part of the basement as kind of like guards for the door leading into all of the money in case somebody does try to break in, like they have to go through them first and they've trained them in a way that dehumanizes them to the point where like they have a taste for flesh, right? So they're, they obviously want, if they were let loose, they would try to react against both mommy and daddy, but they've also been there so long that they kind of just function as as guard dogs in general for any intruder. So that leads to what my favorite shot in the movie is, which is after the house is blown up and money's raining down and everybody's celebrating on the front lawn, you see these kids like out loose in the world for the first time and they're looking around like going, don't know where to go, like wild animals almost. And they just sort of like scatter 
And I'm thinking, I wonder what they're going to get into after this. <laughs> don't ask those questions, Patrick. It's better <laughs> if you don't. They're like, you just unleashed a bunch of crazy people onto this neighborhood. <laughs> All right. Well, let's take a quick break. Um, before we come back, here's another clip from the people under the stairs. Lazy breath sits in a room all day sewing dolls. Children misbehaving in the basement and one in the wall doing his business. God knows where. You kids will be the death of me. All right. That was another clip from 1991's The people under the stairs and we are at the portion of the podcast where we ask our five questions now of course we always like to stay positive but i think we have stayed pretty positive on this bizarre movie um for the most part here but we're going to keep in that line and ask each person what is their favorite scene so sean what is your favorite scene from the people under the stairs mine is probably uh roach's death scene because it signals to me exactly where i am in a different kind of film in the more serious horror version uh of that story that moment would have a lot more impact more attention would be drawn to it they probably would have done a little bit more with roach as a character up until that point but the way that that plays out uh makes me feel okay like i know that this is from the perspective it doesn't just follow fool but it's from the perspective of somebody that young because they can't quite understand the weight of a moment like that, uh, that this, this person has just died to, to help them in their quest and you move on to the next bit, which is exactly what a kid would do in watching and thinking about a story like this. So it's, it's less in terms of the technical execution of it and more given how weird this film is thematically and formally um it's i i like it so much because it helps situate me as a viewer and even roach doesn't seem to mind it's not treated as anything overly dramatic but roach doesn't seem to think it's overly dramatic like the whole thing was a, a laugh to him almost. did you know that sean whalen was like 27 when he when he appeared in this movie and he's playing like a teenage boy all I know is that I kept the, there were two people in this movie that I was looking at their faces like, I know these people from somewhere. Mm -hmm. One was Got Milk, obviously. Um, and the other one was Alice. I was like, where have I seen her before? Escape from L.A. Yeah, it's her first, uh, her first movie, A.J. Langer. Yeah. Uh, all right. She so was also break, My So-Called you... Life, by the way. I love that TV show. Which, which I, I never mm. watched, but... Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, it was a darling of my generation. Yeah. I, I missed out on that one, though. So good. Sorry, just before just before the next person answers, um, just because we were talking about Alice and, and AJ Langer, like watching this and how we were talking about the potential, well, not the potential, the remake that's going to come out eventually. She even looked a little bit like Allison Williams, who was in Get Out uh, as well. So I thought, you know, if Jordan Peele creates a sort of cinematic universe or at least as is the case with a lot of other directors, draws from a similar group of actors that he prefers to work with. I thought that that would be a good casting. And there would be a way that you could do that where that character is more of an adult and it leans into just how crazy these people are. Um, I think that you could do that even given how old she is now. Mm -hmm. 
you could almost have them treating her like a kid, even though she's a full-grown adult. That exactly. she was stunt, stunted emotionally uh, in her growth, maturity. Um, Rick, what is your favorite scene? I don't know. I don't know if it's my favorite, but I think it's the best. It's the bathtub scene. Like, Craven gives us a number of strange, weird, bizarre scenes throughout the whole entire film that includes, like, the outlandish image of Daddy running around in his bondage gear wielding a shotgun. Like, there's a lot of weird images throughout this whole entire film. A lot of weird scenes. But I think the moment that stands out the most and one of the scenes I remembered most before watching it again in 2020, like, you know, almost... God knows, like 20 years after the movie was released, it's the the bathtub scene because it's really disturbing. Like the fact that mommy throws her teenage daughter, Alice, into the bathtub and starts scrubbing her with a wire brush and she's just screaming because the water is so unbearably hot. And I think that the performances in that scene combined with Wes Craven's direction make it a scene that most people will find disturbing in a movie that's so bizarre tonally, like it shifts from comedy to horror to comedy to horror. And that, that is what I'm saying. Like, if you look at that one scene, like Craven could have shot the whole entire film tonally like that scene. And I think it would have been too much for audiences. I don't think anybody would want to sit through a movie where a bunch of like kids are being tortured and held hostage for the entire film by this weird couple. And so I think his decision to actually do a horror comedy was a wise choice because I think, I don't think it would have worked. Like Patrick, I think you're right. I think that if they do the remake and it's a straight up horror film, I think it's going to, it's going to come across as just being mean spirited. It's going to, it's going to be no different than a torture porn film, like an Eli Roth horror film. And I'm not interested in that kind of like movie, to be honest. Yeah, and it might be entertaining while you're watching it, kind of like the Evil Dead remake was well done and entertaining while you're watching it and absolutely unmemorable because it doesn't really have what Evil Dead had to make it memorable. Exactly. Um, and and can I just say that, sorry, just really quick, like the one thing I do like about this movie is it does address some really like serious like topics, but it's not preachy. Like it doesn't have to hit, hit you over the hammer with, it doesn't have to hit you over the head with a hammer to address like specific topics like abuse or or racism or whatever it's like anyone like it's like it's obvious it's there you know what i mean so like craven like that's what i like about craven he's he's just not that kind of director where he gets lost in like you know some movies are just too preachy and he gets lost in the message and forgets about the actual story and about the fact that it's still a movie and people still want to be entertained yeah he never forgets the entertainment part uh that's for sure I was going to say, just leading up to your scene, like why that scene works also is is the, the scenes that precede it where she forces, uh, where mommy forces Alice to clean up the blood on the floor and Alice steps into it and slips and falls and gets it all over her. And then mommy gets mad because she's got blood on her clothes now. And that's what leads to her having to go into the bathtub. But it was essentially mommy's mad at her for getting blood on her after mommy forced her to clean up blood. Um, all of that is just... It's just a buildup from from an absolutely insane thing to force that kid to do. Um, my scene, my favorite scene. Well, I've got a favorite moment, and it's the moment where I realized, okay, I can now roll with this comedy bit, or or at least it made me laugh out loud for the first time. Favorite favorite moment was when 
and it was set up perfectly when they set up how they try to go out the front door and the knob is electrified and they get a little shock from it. But later on when they're fighting Prince and Leroy's getting attacked by Prince and Fool grabs the handle and Leroy's hand and they electrocute the dog through conducting the electricity through themselves. I laughed out loud. That was where I was like, okay, this movie's goofy. This is going to be, it is now going that in a completely different direction than I thought. It's going to be more like a cartoon almost. Um, I laughed out loud in that, and I think that was that's one of my favorite moments because at least I changed my mind. Um, outside of that, I really like the introductory scene with Alice and mommy and daddy, where she's eating in her room, has just finished eating, and um, she's looking has to look for the fork, and the hand comes out. But I actually thought that was a genuinely creepy, weird scene. And I thought the movie at that point was going to be a creepy, weird horror movie. It was a great scene for a creepy, weird horror movie. Um, so two different scenes there, I guess. One to personify the comic, the comedic aspects, and then the other to personify like how genuinely creepy the movie could have been had it decided to stay in, in that direction. So the opening scene, it opens with a tarot card reading. And we find out that the kid's name is Fool. But I kind of felt like the opening scene was sort of telling us, the audience, that this kid's name is Fool. We're going to see the world through his eyes because we don't really know what to expect. And we're like, whatever we think we know, we don't really know. Does that make any kind of sense? I might just reading too much into the film here. No, because I, I, I liked the intro a lot, actually. That was one of the notes Be, that I made. Because the thing about the intro is that, correct me if I'm wrong, there is a tarot card reading at the beginning of the movie, right? That first scene? Yes. Okay, yeah. He turns yeah. 13, and, and she, his sister is reading tarot for him. The, as they're talking about that picture of the fool on the card and how he's going to be turning back, and the basically the boy of him is going to be burned away and the man will come out. Like, all, all of that tarot card reading, that intro, is just signaling the journey that he's going to be taking in the film, um, which is why I liked it, because it's such... It's such a recognizable device, and I would assume for a lot of people it would be extremely obvious and, and heavy-handed, and they wouldn't enjoy it because of that. But it's such a good scene-setter, I guess, is why I liked it as much as I did. I, I guess what I'm trying to ask here is because this movie came out in 1991, and, like, sure... Every great horror film addresses something wrong with society based on the director's point of view, right? Like with George A. Romero and Dawn of the Dead, it's all about consumerism. And, you know, the first movie, Night of the Living Dead, is about like the Vietnam War and et cetera, et cetera, right? So I'm just wondering, like in this movie, like this movie came out again, 1991. At that point in time, there's a lot of movies like Boys in the Hood, and a lot of movies that took place in ghettos of like the United States of America that address poverty and racism, et cetera, et cetera. So I kind of felt like maybe this is Wes Craven's way of telling the audience like you're going to step into the shoes of this young boy and see the world from his point of view, his eyes and see how these rich, I guess in this case, white people, although it doesn't matter if they're white or black, there's rich people that are just taking advantage of the poor and how they're making them live in these terrible conditions and then finding ways to evict the, evict the people and turning those inexpensive complexes of buildings into like high end property, like, you know, making them condos or whatever type of thing. Like I mean, that, that was actually going on around the world, like in North America, Canada, United States. I mean, we kind of talked about this when we reviewed Candyman, right? How Helen moves into uh, an apartment complex, which is no different than the apartment complex across the train tracks, only for whatever reason, they decided that they wanted to make those like more expensive. So they raised the price, but you know what I mean? Like the way it's actually built, it's the same building. It's just across the tracks. In Candyman, yeah, yeah. In Candyman, yeah. 
No, I, I, I mean, they might have even used the same building. Like, his apartment complex reminded me so much of Candyman's. It might have even been the exact same building, for all I know. Just, just touching on what you're saying in terms of horror and its central metaphors, I, I can't think of... So this is different for me than Boys in the Hood, which is kind of a, asking the viewer to come into to this environment and be a part of it and see uh, what it's like and to empathize with these characters. This this one seems at its core to be more about the the gentrification dynamic. So not just the one community, but how one community has a, this overlord effect over another community. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head another horror film that uses gentrification as its central metaphor that came out before this film. I'm sure there was a movie. I just can't think of it right now. I would have to think about this. But yeah, like, so Candyman came out a year later. So there was a shift in Hollywood where you had filmmakers like Bernard Rose, Wes Craven, and not, again, white filmmakers, like white men, like, who are making these movies about black neighborhoods, like specifically horror films about black neighborhoods. And it just became this thing. And I, I don't know, I guess Hollywood just saw like money to be made in telling these stories. But the, anyhow, the point is there's just this really interesting shift in, in the nineties with horror. And we saw a lot of these movies like Candyman, like people under the stairs come out and, you know, you have filmmakers like Jordan Peele now who say those are the movies that inspire them to be filmmakers in the future. So it, I feel like those films also are the reason why we have filmmakers like Jordan Peele now, present day, these black American filmmakers, directors, cinematographers, editors who got into horror because of these movies. So it just it really did sort of like start a movement. For sure. Yeah. All right. Now, that all being said, if there was one thing that you could change about the people under Sarah Sean, what would it be? Without a doubt, it would be the dubbing. It it stands out. Like if for listeners who uh, maybe this is one of their first episodes for for sort of cinema or for podcasts talking about film in general, uh, if you don't know a lot of the sound uh, that's recorded in the film isn't actually done like on the set during the scene. It's done in the studio and actors will will deliver those lines and they'll double over. And if it's done really well, you just don't notice it here. You absolutely notice it right from the get go. <laughs> There's with, no uh, way you can ever do it well where you don't notice it. Like it used to work when they would film movies in Italy and they would dub over the sound in editing because it was cheaper for whatever reason to do it in editing post-production as opposed to recording sound live on set. But it was different because you have like Italian, you have like an Italian movie that's being dubbed in English. So you just assume that obviously it's not going to sync up with the lips of the actor because it's not even being said in English. But this movie, you know, these dudes are American, like they're speaking English and it doesn't sync up at all. So it's distracting. It's it's there are some tough moments, especially with Ruby, who's a uh, fool's sister, where you can tell that it's as she's acting it on screen. If she had been delivering the lines, then they would have just sounded differently to the ones that ended up being recorded and being used. It's it's much more like calm and uninterested in terms of the delivery where it would be a, a much more urgent in the actual moment. So that that was definitely a sticking point for me. That's really where I think dubbing matters the most. I mean, obviously, if the if the lines don't sync with their mouth movements, that's one thing, and it can be distracting. But when it kind of goes against their on uh, onset performance, which in her case, I think you're absolutely right, it completely did. 
uh, that's what it can, it can kind of bring the movie uh, down a peg, um, or at least those scenes down a peg. Unlike the lip sync thing, which is annoying, but it doesn't necessarily kill a movie. I think those sorts of things, when an actor doesn't can't get back to that place that they were at that day when they shot it, that that can be uh, more detrimental. I mean, I was going to say the exact same thing. I did find it distracting. I'm curious to know why. Is it is it because a sound was recorded poorly and they didn't want to use the sound, or is it because they were trying to save money? Because like again, the movie was made in 1991 in in the U.S. and I'm sure it was mostly shot on a Hollywood set. So why didn't they actually record the sound normally, like most films do? Whereas like in the 70s, when you travel to Italy to make a movie and you're on the road and you don't have a Hollywood set, it's harder to actually get good sound. Like one of the hardest things in making a movie is getting good sound. I remember when I used to make short films, it was like impossible. Um, so like, I'm not sure why, why they did this. It's so weird. I can only imagine that it got completely messed up somehow. <laughs> that for whatever reason, it just didn't record very well. Uh, that's the only thing I can think. Or yeah, I, I don't. It wasn't so low budget. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, it was not even really a big budget movie. But it wasn't terrible for the '90s. I think it was was made for what seven million dollars or something like that back in 1991 for a, for a horror movie. That wasn't a terrible budget or anything like that. Um, there would have been plenty of movies made for that amount. I've dubbed the entire thing. Uh, for me, there's a lot of little moments that I would change. I guess, like you said, this is a great script. I would disagree with that. I actually don't think it's a very good script at all. <laughs> but I think Craven's a good filmmaker that he was able to make a good movie out of it. And I think he's got a good premise. And he had an idea in his head that he was able to, to realize but there's so many little things that don't really make sense that could be tightened up. You know, as an example, um, when the the voice recording of mommy and daddy saying prayers at the end of the night, there was absolutely no reason for them to be suspicious at that point that there was somebody in the house that was going to come up to their bedroom. Why would you even put on the, the tape recorder? It didn't make any sense. It was just a fake out for the audience. Uh, it wasn't anything that was that was built up towards or... There are a lot of things in this movie that, to me, are kind of like that from a writing standpoint, where they're sort of convenient, let's put it that way, uh, a little too convenient. And so I would I would tend to, I would want to fix all of those things. As I was watching the movie, there were just lots of little things that I wanted to shore up, just to tighten, just to make it, to set things up that occurred later in the movie, set them up earlier in the movie. So at least it, it actually is a payoff and it feels like a payoff. Um, or at least to make it make sense. There are a lot of little things in this movie like that. When I say it's a good screenplay, like, yeah, you can touch it up. And I guess in execution, things didn't really make a lot of sense. Like when we're actually watching the movie, but I think overall, like the concept, like I think it's pretty cool having a heist film that turns into home invasion. It's like horror comedy that has a political, like sociological message. Like, and even like again, like the the opening, like the tarot card reading, like that tarot card, the opening, just for whatever reasons, it it sticks with me. Like it's something I just can't stop thinking of because it's like the choices that Fool makes throughout the film. It it not only shapes who he becomes, but it puts him in a position like like he and and uh, what is the name that of the character that Ving Rhames plays? 
it's Leroy, right? Him and Leroy, they don't necessarily make the right choices, the right decisions. Like, they kind of put themselves in this, this situation where they are in a lot of trouble. Like, you know, to the point where Leroy actually dies and his, his partner actually dies. Um, and again, like, the, the idea of, like, the domestic abuse and this, like, crazy deranged couple actually kidnapping kids and holding them hostage in, in their basement underneath the stairs and the whole idea of... Um, of them being like this wealthy rich couple who's uh you know trying to take over specific like a specific area of los angeles so they can tear down the apartment buildings and build like fresh condos and make a ton of money off of it like there's a lot of interesting ideas in the screenplay so yeah clearly the screenplay can be can use a draft or two and i think when they're actually filming a movie they can they can execute things better um and, and you know maybe answer questions like why are these dudes still alive if like they're like you know like why keep a bunch of like, why keep an army of cannibals <laughs> like like in, in your, your house <laughs> well so let, let me weird. address like <laughs> the idea that they're they're the landlords and they're trying to get fool's family evicted so that they can sell the sell the off that building or just destroy it and build something else in there to make more money that is a, an idea that is set up early in the movie and it's a great premise right and then it's completely abandoned for the rest of the movie as all the craziness ensues that making money has very little to do with any of their motivation throughout the rest of the movie and instead it becomes all about the craziness of their child rearing right and the domestic abuse part that's what I mean about like how the screenplay doesn't really – it's got a lot of ideas. He has a lot of great ideas, and he's a good enough filmmaker to make it coherent enough. But a better screenplay would have developed those ideas and made them pay off. And yeah, in the end, the house blows up with the money. But at that point, we've kind of even forgotten that these people were their landlords until the crowd shows up and reminds the audience, hey, yeah, remember these people were their landlords? And part of this is about money because it never has anything to do with – what mommy and daddy are really talking about or how they they go about things for i would say a good the, the entire like middle portion of the movie that, that that's just completely gone yeah it can use a draft issue but that's what i'm saying it has potential to be a good remake a great remake i mean like the fact that fool like again he he's given this tarot card reading and it says he's pretty much going to make the wrong choice he makes the wrong choice but there's still a chance for redemption because he does go back and save the daughter and then they go back again to save alice and and that's what i like about the movie like in terms of like his character arc i really like the way his character is written but the actual family themselves, like, it, like I think there's a lot of holes and questions to be answered. Um, so, like, uh, yeah, I would love to see some, like, again, we're going to see the movies, like, they're remaking the movie. So we'll see what happens. Um, I know Craven was initially going to do a TV show, but he died. So now they're just making it a movie. Tell, answer me this last question before we move on to our next thing. Any one of you. How the hell did, because daddy's running around shooting up the entire house making holes in the walls trying to get, get roach trying to get the others trying to get fool and you know even alice at, at some point and when the cops come in the entire house looks perfectly fine how did that happen <laughs> well somebody explain to me i felt like i missed a scene there or like, like more time went by and for him to be able to fix all those things because if i'm not mistaken he was shooting the hell out of that place in every room these, these are other questions that you're not supposed to ask. <laughs> uh, that's where the writer and me would be like, okay, I need to come up with something, right? I'll just keep the cops out of most of the house, you know, somehow. 
instead of letting them walk through, even though it was a nice little image of her serving them tea and cookies. Um, okay. I got to remember where we're at. Now I'm starting to remember all the things that... Uh, MVP. <laughs> riling me up. Yes, exactly. Okay, so, um, Sean, who do you think is the MVP of this film? Um, probably Wendy Robbie as Mommy. It's just such a convincing performance, and just, you hate her so much. And executed perfectly gets the creepiness down very well gets the transition putting up a front when the police officers are in there really well uh because some of the technical stuff like directing takes a back seat i think or at least in my my viewing experience it does become a little bit more uh about the performances so like the actual answer is of course the the set designer but uh, i i'd want to throw a lot of love over to to that performance in particular yeah, I think it's interesting going after an actor in this one because I, I feel like the actors are all the cast is the MVP in in general. Like I, I think that Brandon Adams did a, did a great job as Poindexter or Fool or you know, and uh, even from the smaller roles like Ving Rhames as Leroy, who's not in the movie that that much, but he's fantastic while he's in there and he lends a lot to it. All of them are very very convincing and very good. Wendy Robbie, of course, yeah, she's she's diabolical. Uh, and controls, she's kind of the one in control of everything. She's the, the puppet master pulling the strings. So everybody does a really good job. That's who I'd want to give it to the cast in general. But um, outside of that, I think I'd give it to, to Brandon Adams because he does, surprisingly, even though I'm usually against you know movies with children, child actors in the lead, I just those normally don't appeal to me at all. He did a very good job, and he did hold the movie together quite well even through all the kind of the goofy things that he was asked to do um he, he pulls it off as best he can what about you rick same the cast i think if you change the cast this movie might not work most likely won't work i think that uh, ving rames and brandon adams are just fantastic and i i love them as a buddy cop duo and where they're actually trying to like perform a heist and break into this like house of horrors uh, i think ving rames is amazing in the movie uh, he's got hands down the best dialogue the best lines was it written in a screenplay did he ad-lib it did he improvise i don't know i'm i'm willing to bet that that's a lot of him and not so much the screenplay and brandon adams is just he's just so good i mean he he he's like the centerpiece he's the the star he's the main actor sean you're also right whoever uh, designed the house and built the house but you know we can also that that this is where it gets murky because like we could also point to the cinematographer because like the best looking scenes are in the basement and has a lot to do with the lighting, right? Which not necessarily has, it doesn't necessarily have to do with the actual set design because we don't even see the set. So because of that, I'm going to go with the cast and, you know, Wes Craven's clearly an, an incredible director. He's one of my favorites and he's got talent, but this doesn't seem to be like a director's movie. It feels like, I mean, it's clearly an ensemble piece. It feels like, like, like most movies, it's a bunch of people who make or break a movie. And in this case, I think everyone just did just enough to make it worthwhile. Like, I would easily recommend this movie, but again, the cast, the cast, the cast. Yeah, I feel like as far as Craven goes, he definitely had a vision, but this isn't one of those visions that's so strong that you see like this is exactly what he intended, where he controlled every facet of the production and made his movie 
I don't get that sense from this. I feel like everybody was contributing a lot to this. It kind of got made into, it's an amalgamation of what everybody thought of this screenplay and of this idea. Uh, they all contributed to it. So at that point, I don't believe it becomes Wes Craven's movie. He may have, he obviously directed it and it was his idea, but I think it just got turned into everyone's idea. And so at that point, he's not necessarily the author, the sole author of this movie. Um, and everybody else has a lot more influence on it. Uh, all right. So our fourth question, I don't, we forgot to ask this one last week, but uh, the Howard Hawks test. So the Howard, according to Howard Hawks, a great movie it needs to have three great scenes, but most importantly, no bad ones. So Sean, does people under the stairs pass the Howard Hawks test? I don't know if this is a bad scene necessarily, but it's one that raised questions for me just because there wasn't enough around it. And that's when after fool has, uh, released Alice, but then she has to go pretending, uh, that she's still hung up there in the attic. We get daddy coming in and like he reaches for his cock and there's sexual implications there. And it's really the only time where that's made explicit. There are probably other scenes where you could read something into that as something that the film wants to explore, but that's the only one that's like directly, all right, this is an aspect of this relationship, potentially, uh, even if it's never been acted upon and it's just in the character's head, it's still something that the camera's picking up and so that it's important in some way. And the fact that that's the only one of those that jumps out in that way, I kind of wish that that had been removed or that they had explored it more. I could be wrong, but I think there's a scene between mommy and daddy, which it's somewhat sort of addressed. And I think mommy is protecting her from him. It's really weird, but I, I yeah, it's one of those things where they don't really dig too deep into the domestic and maybe perhaps sexual abuse of the kids. But you know what? Regardless, I'm actually going to say no, Patrick, just because I don't think this movie has three great scenes. Regardless, if you guys don't think it has bad scenes, there's no way. Like, I'm sorry, I love Wes Craven. There's no way this movie has three great, great scenes? No. It has a lot of fun scenes, but great? Three? Yeah, I, I think that was the, the route I was going to take as well. I was trying to think of, like, there's a lot of little bad moments but i wouldn't call them bad scenes i couldn't think of a specific scene that i thought i would trash the entire thing and even at the end i thought it was a little hokey that the entire neighborhood shows up on their front lawn but that's being intercut with several other things and it kind of works even if i think it's a little hokey it works yeah i wouldn't call it bad um it just goes against some of my sensibilities but uh but i still wouldn't call it bad it, it works within the context of what the movie has become at that point um but yeah, my, my thing was going to be, I don't know that I could say that there are three great scenes. There are scenes that I like, but I don't know about, that's that's the thing, the, the greatness, I'm not sure is there. I agree. Um, but there is there is still plenty to like, uh, at least, I, I, think there, I think there was, having seen it for the, the first time in 2020. So what do you guys think? Is there an audience for people under the stairs going forward? And if so, what does that audience look like? What kind of movies do you think that audience is into? And I know we always say like, oh, if you love horror, you should watch this. That's not always the case, I don't think. Um, this is a very specific type of horror movie. It's a very different type of horror movie. So what do you guys think? Like, who is who is the audience for this going forward, if there is one? I think it's probably, from my perspective, it's a younger audience who are 
beginning to deal with socioeconomic concerns, regardless of what, where they are in that conversation, whether it's a position um, of, of power or privilege or on the other side of that spectrum. I think the the way that that's handled in this film is not explicit enough in a way that works for kids. Uh, and I would say, yeah, like I wish that I had seen this as like a 12 year old or a 13 year old. Cause I think I would have like really enjoyed it. Cause it hits all of the, the story beats that, uh, that you get from something like a home alone. Like it's, it's fun to root for the character in that way. I would say horror fans and more, uh, adult viewers who are looking for a different approach, a more dramatic approach that, that there's not really an audience for, for this original version of the film anymore. But I still think that this would appeal to a younger audience. It's interesting. Cause I think that this would be a really, really great kids horror movie. It's got some gruesome stuff in it, but, you know, we watched Indiana Jones, rip, uh, you know, some guy rip another guy's heart out in Indiana Jones and hold it up above his head as it lights on fire. So I can't say that the gruesomeness is scary, but it's also brief. And it's fairly quick. And when you do see a lot of blood, like it's just in a pool on the floor or something like that. It's not spurting out of somebody's face. I mean, you do see severed limbs and, and all that kind of stuff. And there's a couple of bodies. And I think what happens to, you do see daddy chopping people up and, and feeding meat to people. <laughs> feeding flesh <laughs> to scary. a bunch of kids. Yeah. Um, I, I would it's, not recommend it, this to kids. It appeals to kids' sensibilities as to what they're scared of, though. They're scared of getting caught in an attic, in a tight space. They're scared of dogs. They're scared of uh, all... These are not adult fears that are being portrayed in this movie, for the most part. It's child's fears. So... The thing about this movie is where it gets touchy is because it implies that the dad wants to rape the daughter. And so if it wasn't for the the weird sexual tension between not only the mom and dad, but also the kids that they kidnap. Um, if that wasn't present, I would be like, okay, then this would make a good like gateway film for like kids to get into like the world of horror. Now, again, it depends what you mean by kids. Are we talking about 16 year olds? I completely missed the part that you were talking about with daddy and, and her. Um, I didn't see that at all. So it's subtle enough that I missed it. And um, I, my assumption was that he wanted to kill her that mommy was protecting him from killing her. He he would say, why don't you just let me, you know, off her at this point? Like, he, he wanted to get rid of her, and mommy thought that there was something left to save. Um, but he thought she was a troublemaker. And in the opening scene, it has nothing to do with uh, sexual abuse. He's beating her, and she just says, stay away from the face. One of the key um, plot, one of the key words in Internet Movie Database is sexual predator. So I'm just saying, like, before I, know, I recommend yeah, this I movie. Completely missed, <laughs> I completely missed that element of it. Yeah. I think it's subtle enough that, that a lot of kids wouldn't get it. Oh, and, for you sure. Know, movies, movies did have uncomfortable things in the past. And I'm not saying, again, like, I'm not necessarily recommending this for kids. I'm wondering if the, uh, the future audience, if there is, if, if, child children's horror movies ever come back because they are gone right now like they're just solid gone they don't exist nobody's making them really uh, they but tried. if they ever come what's that they tried don't be afraid of the dark there was like whatever that i think that movie came out in like 2015 there was like a few movies 
yeah, a few movies that year got released. They were trying to aim for a younger audience, and a complete all the movies completely flopped. But you're right. I mean, kids won't like. I mean, I remember when I was younger, I used to watch these horror films, and I just it would never like occur to me what the movies were actually about until I'm older. Um, but I remember when I worked at the day camp and we decided to show Monster Squad, right? So we had like, um, it was like raining. So we put up like a big screen and projected the movie on, on the big screen. And I thought it would be great. And it was until Dracula picked up the little girl and called her, you bitch. And all the kids lost their minds. And the next day I had like 15 phone calls from parents who were so pissed off because we showed the Monster Squad, which was a movie I watched when I was like a kid. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, movies like The Gate. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of like kids horror movies that uh, the, from the '80s that would be completely inappropriate to show somebody now. But I, I feel like they they add to. I mean, kids do need to see grown up stuff. Fairy tales were uncomfortable, and they contained violence and not great things, not nice things a lot of the time. But the question was, like, who's the who is the audience for this movie nowadays in 2020? And that's where things have changed. Like nowadays people are just so sensitive as to what you can show kids um, that like, I don't know, like I, you know, I'll be curious again to see what the remakes like, like, is the remake going to be a movie that's aimed uh, where the target audience is like adults? Is it going to be darker? Is it going to be aimed at a younger audience? Are they going to make, are they going to start making movies like the monster squad again? Goonies is scary at certain parts. Like those people are trying to kill those kids. They're trying to murder those kids. But if you were a Hollywood studio, like a producer, wouldn't you want to make scary movies for kids? Because we know that kids movies make a shit ton of money at the box office. Cause you have your family taking like two, three, four kids to the movie theater and they're paying for them. Plus their kids. So you're getting more Plus tickets. You're getting them into horror. It's a gateway drug, man. Like, like I know, don't be afraid of the dark. And those other movies that came out, whatever, like didn't really do very well. But I, I think they're also like they were just like remakes of older movies that weren't just very inspiring and like weren't very good, to be frank. Um, I mean, like Stranger Things is a big, huge hit on Netflix. It's not a movie, but it's a TV show. It's like sci-fi horror, and it, it revolves around a bunch of kids. So if that's such a huge hit, then I would assume that they can do the same thing with movies. Like, I don't understand why they don't take advantage of it. Maybe it's because Disney makes all the kids' movies and Disney is, like, you know, neutered these days. Yeah. And as far as this goes, like, I'm not sure. There, I don't know that Wes Craven fans will exist, uh, you know, 30 years from now. But uh, hopefully they will. But I have a feeling that th this is the kind of movie that... Uh, it'd be hard for me. I'm not sure exactly who I would recommend it to, to tell you the truth. Because I'd have to know somebody's sensibilities pretty well to know whether or not they'd be interested in this. They would have to be an adventure, an adventuresome film watcher. So, somebody who is open to anything. The question is, someone who's not already a horror film, who would you recommend the movie to? Because, like, when we when we watch, like, I mean, the thing is, when it comes to horror films, like, anyone who's, like, a horror movie buff, like, loves horror films, they're going to watch anything that's a horror film, especially if it's directed by someone named Wes Craven. So let's just yeah. get those people out of the way. Who else would we recommend the movie to? And honestly, I do not know. Like, I like, would honestly, this is what I would do, and it was what happened when I was a kid. My dad would, we had HBO, and a lot of times he would stay up late, we'd stay up late on the weekend, and my dad would watch horror movies with my older brother and I and we were probably we were younger than fool he would fast forward to the parts that he knew that were bad so this would be a movie that I would love to show kids if I just like I knew what was coming and I just skipped a couple of things just a little blips but let them otherwise take in the movie as it is I really do think that this is a a, a great horror movie for kids if you skip over just a couple of parts 
it works really, really well for them. I mean, that's I who I recommend that. it to. But I think that would have to be with some parental guidance. That's all. But but you know what? I, I like you can you can show kids home alone, and then next thing you know, they're like pulling off these pranks on their friends, and they're sending them to the hospitals because they think it's okay to like drop. Uh, a can of paint from like the fifth floor onto someone's head. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like. Well, in, I don't know. I, I mean, I saw Home Alone. I wasn't. I, wasn't I know, but I'm to... just saying the way parents are these days are so sensitive that they'll complain about every movie. Um, so, like me, I wouldn't mind showing it to my kids. Yeah, I, that's why. I, I mean, I would show my nieces this. Like, I would, I would just skip a couple of parts that might freak them out or traumatize. You know, like maybe, maybe Ving Rhames's skinned body being tossed into the the thing in the cellar. Maybe I skip past that part, or or you know him carving. Nah, out. leave that in. <laughs> Man, I Maybe saw I, I saw Tim Curry as as Pennywise in it, like when I was in elementary school. And if something was gonna fuck you up, it would be something like that. And I turned out okay. So I, I'm showing this to kids for sure. Yeah, it did. I mean, I saw it as well, and it was it was scary. I, I and things like I saw Alien and the the thing bursting out of John Hurt's chest. I know it traumatized me as a as a kid. Don't get me wrong. Like I remember, but you get over time, it, right? You do get over it eventually. Every time it would come on for a little while, though, I would I knew when it was coming out of the movie. I love the movie, but I would turn my head away from that because I just didn't like. I would feel it inside me. Otherwise, you know. Look, I, I've said this so many times on the show. When I was younger, my cousin showed me Nightmare on Elm Street, the original, and when I saw that Johnny Depp scene when his body just exploded and there was blood everywhere, I was like traumatized. But that movie made me a horror movie buff. That movie made me a movie buff. That movie made me take notice of things like cinematography and directing and screenplay writing and all this other great stuff that just totally changed my life, right? Um, yeah. So movies yeah. that affect you are the reason that you start to watch movies. That is why we watch them. We want to be affected in some way. It, for me, it's not just about like sitting back and watching a story. You want to be affected, and the good movies do that. They disturb you, or they make you feel sad, or they make you feel excited and energized um you know i recently watched just a small little documentary called the battered bastards of baseball and by the end of that movie i was juiced and i wanted to go out and play baseball and i love when movies can do that and horror movies when you're when you're a kid watching horror movie like that that you know yes it does traumatize you a little bit but that's what's effective jaws is the reason that i want got into that i went to film school it's because that movie terrified me of the water when i was for my entire child life i i just imagine a shark was going to eat me. All I could see was the shot of those kicking legs as the camera comes up to them. Like, and I just imagined that there was something under me, and that was the power of filmmaking. Did I see it too young? By some people's standards, probably yes. Um, but I don't think so. It was what made me love movies. Josh should be recommended viewing for every five-year-old. <laughs> Listen, I'm on board with that. I, I love hearing stories like that. I definitely avoided sewers after seeing it, and I definitely put towels over television sets because of seeing uh, Ringu. Oh, and sure. Yeah, like I, I was having none of that. But, you know, it, it, it sticks with you, and at first it is kind of traumatizing, but you're right. It can lead to some really great curiosities, and I think we as adults probably don't give kids enough credit, or we, we forget that when we were that age we weren't being like our, our film viewing wasn't curated in a way that would leave out something like the people under the stairs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a movie I would have seen. I mean, Poltergeist was, you know, in many ways, a kid's movie starring kids. And uh, that movie is scary as hell. And it's got some gross stuff in it too. <laughs> so 
I don't know. I didn't look under my bed. I can tell you that much. Didn't stick my head under there to at hell night. no. <laughs> so yeah, that's so I I hope there's an audience for this kind of movie going forward, and I see it as being children because I don't think this is. It's an interesting movie for people who like movies. I think there's a lot to look at and examine here just from a filmmaking point of view. But I think as far as the actual audience for this movie, I think kids would really, it would really get to them and make them think about things in in many ways. So I think it would appeal to some of their base fears. Um, And they're not going to know what the the bondage suit is. (laughs) So I hope. Um, they're not going to know what a lot of this stuff is. And if they have little inklings of it, well, that's going to be theirs to, you know, sort of, they can ask questions afterwards, which For is what, sure. kids, well, that's what kids are supposed to do. Yeah. And just to, to throw my two cents, Ricky mentions growing up and there being that neighborhood haunted house. I think when I was growing up, we didn't have the haunted house, but there were definitely a couple of houses where all the kids who would walk by would be like, Oh yeah, the guy who lives there. Like if you step onto his lawn, he, he kills all the kids and then he takes them. <laughs> so it it feeds into like those kinds of mythos, which is nice. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. Well, with that, I think we should probably wrap things up. Um, Sean, where can we find you online? Uh, obviously, we know you've got your podcast. If you want to promote that a little bit here. Heck yeah. The Midseason Replacements podcast is available through uh, Tilt Magazine and Goomba Stomp, but you can also find it on iTunes, uh, Podbean, all those kinds of things where you get your your podcasts. Uh, it's Randy Dankovich and I just talking about both contemporary and classic television. So we, we've been reviewing um, some recent things, but also rewatching watching uh, really the first big HBO drama series, Oz. Uh, which came out in 1997. Uh, we we have good discussions, so check that out. I'm not really on any of the medias uh, anywhere else, um, so I'll I'll keep that on the down low. But yeah, please do check out the midseason replacements podcast. When you guys do are ready to get around to uh, my favorite sitcom of all time, the Andy Griffith Show, you just let me know. Oh I'll yeah, there. for sure. <laughs> uh i also am not really on a whole lot of social media at the moment but um you know you can always of course find my past work on goomastop.com and uh you know hopefully there will be some feature work starting next year as well rick where can we find you and the show goombastump.com tiltmagazine.net the actual podcast url is sortedcinema.com so if you just type in sortedcinema.com it gets redirected to our podcast show page over goombastump and you can listen to the show on spotify youtube itunes stitcher google play podbean you name it it's everywhere Uh, once again sortedcinema.com or goombastump.com yeah, check us out. All right, uh, next week we're coming back with a completely, we're heading in a completely different direction. And uh, Shirley, Rick, I'm going to be excited for this one. And we will see you guys next week. He doesn't talk much, does he? His tongue's cut out. Well, mommy caught him trying to call for help one day. and Daddy had to teach him speak no evil, right? Your father's one sick mother, you know that? Actually, your mother's one sick mother, too. Shh. You're speaking evil. They'd kill you if they heard a word you just said. Roach. Roach is my friend. Roach? I'm Point Dexter. Everybody calls me fool. Hmm? You sure I got the names, huh? <laughs>